electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, it's all about the data. The days of the Fed hiking rates on autopilot are over. The chairman said decisions will now be made meeting by meeting. How will this policy shift impact the markets? We'll debate that straight ahead. Plus, Eli Lilly's big breakthrough, the drug giant saying its experimental Alzheimer's drug appears to slow symptoms in a large-scale study. The CEO telling CNBC this is a significant step forward. The stock surging to an all-time high. A deep dive coming up. And later, crude keep uh, crude climb now crumbling, now back below 70 bucks a barrel. Starbucks grande size fall after earnings, and the options action on Apple ahead of tomorrow's results. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Steve Grasso. We start off with a third day of losses on Wall Street. Major indices closing at session lows following the Fed's decision to lift rates by another quarter point. The Dow sliding 270 points. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq also closing in the red. The market taking a leg lower after Fed Chief Jerome Powell indicated that after 10 rate hikes in a row, there are no plans for rate cuts because of stubbornly high inflation. So if this is where the Fed pauses and it's higher for longer scenario, then what's next for this market? Tim, what do you think? Well, this was as expected. Uh, this was a, a, this is a Fed that's gone 10 straight times. Everyone knows these numbers. And you have a case where uh, you've got a jobs market that's still stubbornly tight. We've had data this week that's actually been better than expected. And we have an economy that the Fed is kind of conceding light recession. Uh, not a great environment for stocks. Um, if you look at Fed fund futures, they don't believe the Fed. Uh, market doesn't really seem to believe the Fed either. In other words, the market right now, I would say equities, uh, even with a little pullback today. And it was, uh, yeah, I was a little surprised at some of that. I guess parsing through the Fed uh, statement, there was, you know, some of it could have been a little bit more uh, dovish on the on the cut here. But anyway, long story short, I, I just think that the market doesn't believe the Fed here. And, and pause does not mean pivot. And I think for equities, that's a problem. The market doesn't believe the Fed because Jay Powell went out and he spoke to the world and didn't seem to have a lot of conviction or clarity about what's going on. And that seemed very clear. Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line was on with Scott Wapner right afterwards, and he made that point. And it was something that I felt after listening he? to the Q&A. I know, but Nobody at some does. point. How could he? I mean, well, I, I mean, okay, but, but markets don't like uncertainty. Um, so to me, I'm actually very surprised the market wasn't down a lot more today. I think it will be down a lot more tomorrow. And if you think about just where, like, some of the reading that we have as it relates to volatility in the equity markets and the treasury markets, um, they are really just stuck here. And it seems very odd to me. But if you look at one indicator to me that I think is probably one of the most important, we talked about it last night, crude oil. I mean, you guys tell me what's going on. If that is not a reflection on expectations for growth, it's no longer a supply-demand story here. So I just think that some of the volatility that we've seen in the commodity markets, that we've seen in uh, foreign exchange markets, I think it will work itself, obviously, and in the rate market, will work itself in the equities. In the very I soon. thought you were going to say gold. It was either crude or No, gold that would be guy. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> Steve. So I, I think Steve Lee's been asked uh, a couple of good questions, and, and the other reporters asked a couple of good questions. Steve asked if the Fed knew that there was some sort of stress on the banks a month ago, why didn't that catch his attention? And he stuttered. Yeah. Then another reporter asked, if in the beginning of the year you slowed down the pace to see what the lag effects would be, 
why did you, why do you, and now you see them with the banks failing, why do you keep pushing on it at this point? So we have, what, 200 basis points in lag coming? Why wouldn't you just wait? So now you had 175 basis points into this meeting. Now you have 200 basis points of a lag coming, a long and variable lags. To me, it just seems as if any bank that fails from here going forward, he's wearing it. And that's not even including the, the equivalent of rate hikes uh, that will be credit tightening. Yes. Mark Zandi has pegged that as two to three rate hikes, so 75 basis points or so. For so sure. add that on top of the lag effects, and you've got a lot of tightening that's going to still be felt here. We are seeing headlines in the after hours, by the way. If we can show a chart of PacWest. Um, this is a regional bank that has been under pressure in recent days. It is now uh, almost cut in half in the after-hour session. This on reports that it is weighing strategic options, including a sale. This, according to Bloomberg, we're telling you this report because the stock is moving on the back of this. This is all part of the same story, though. Um, and, and to your point, Stephen, to Steve Leeson's point, it was pr- pretty much on the eve of a rate hike. He saw this, you know, deck about SVB being in trouble in interest rate risk. And here we are again, even though everybody's saying the banking system is fine. Well, a couple things to that. Why would he continue to raise? Because inflation is still really high. Right. Right. And his mandate is maximum employment and stability. Well, the stability is still way out of whack. So things would have to break. So I, I sort of feel like it, it, I understand people uh, think that the Fed is a sort of co-conspirator, but I feel like that was their job. They had to do this. Where they really screwed up to me was 2018, where they didn't start. That was the time. They should have started raising then. Anyway, uh, that's how I hear that this. You and I were talking right before the show started. I was wondering, why would PacWest say this? Why wouldn't you do this in private? And you were saying, maybe it wasn't them that said this. Right. It's other sources saying this. This is very bad for them. Uh, in a different environment, strategic alternatives is a great thing, right? You hope sure. some, uh, you want to stop. Exactly. <laughs> this hurts value because if you're a customer of the bank, you're, you know, that's not a great thing you want to read. So yeah. clearly, clearly there will be collateral damage in the space tomorrow. And, and, and PacWest had just given an update recently, and they, they talked about how their deposits were up 6% from that March period to the April period, that their CET ratio was over 10%. So you, you had a message that, you know, like, a week ago wasn't that bad and was sign up improvements and forget net interest margins. We know where they were going to go. But but the balance sheet, the deposit base, and that should make everybody think twice about all of these regional banks. If And that's that's what this kind of an announcement does. Right. But more bank failure, I mean, as it relates to the Fed, when you think about more bank failures or potential bank failures, that's more stress on the system. And that may be yet another reason for the Fed not to hike in June and to stay. I don't think June matters anymore. I mean, I think to Steve's point, there's more tightening that's coming by the way of just what they end up doing or not doing with their balance sheet. Right. And so that's a really big point. So listen, I I think 5% Fed funds and they're going to stay here until something meaningfully changes their mind about growth. And that would be the thing that would cause them to start uh, changing their interest rate policy to the downside. But that will not be good for equity valuations. Let's make one point about financials. I mean, Schwab, you know, I, I don't know what's going on, but it closed at a two year low. I mean, so it closed at a two year low. Did you see JP Morgan is giving back all of the gains that it had this week from this supposed sweetheart deal from First Republic? I don't think they really wanted to buy this asset. And it looks like they might get a chance tonight. to buy something else. I, have think, other I think they did. 
I disagree. Well, I mean, well, but, but it doesn't. That's here nor there because there's five others that are going to go under that the equity is going to zero. And and just you know the one thing I'll just say is like we go back to 2008 when Bernanke said that this crisis was contained in the first half of 08. What I heard today from Jay Powell, he said it's possibly different this time. So different this time are three of the worst words you could hear. Possibly doesn't make them any better. All right, let's get more on the Fed's decision and Powell's press conference with senior economics reporter. Steve Leesman. Steve, um, there's a lot to, of grounding. What was your take on on his response to you? It did seem like it struck me that this was a moment that I saw. I thought that he was very uncomfortable in answering your question about what he saw in that deck about, uh, you know, regional bank stress and, and specifically SVB. Yeah, I think they dropped the ball on that. And that was the answer. But he didn't want to give that answer. I mean, he said that it wasn't alarming. And then when I followed up and said, how can you say it wasn't alarming? He said he didn't say it wasn't alarming, but it was, he did, yeah. did say it wasn't alarming. Um, so there's a couple things to unpack there. The first thing was saying that uh, the banking system uh, is, 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 doing, is doing well. Well, they've lost $400 billion of deposits in the last month, and there's no particular end seen to that. They've lost three banks in the past month. The uh, KBW is down 30%, or I, I suppose, or maybe more today. What I thought was interesting was I asked him about the separation principle, monetary policy on the one hand and um, uh, supervisory policy on the other hand. If you don't mind, uh, Melissa, let's, can we listen to his response to me on that? I think in this particular case, we have found that uh, the monetary policy tools and the financial stability tools are not in conflict. They're both they're working well together. We've used our, our uh, financial stability tools to support banks through our lending facilities. And um, at the same time, we've been able to uh, use our monetary policy tools to foster maximum employment and price stability. Right. So working well together. Let's take a look at the KBW just after the Fed hike, uh, hike today. It's down another 2% today. You talked about Zion. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, PacWest that was out there. Zion was down big. So not working so well together, I think, is the issue. And that's why a lot of people I was talking to, I've been talking to saying, the Fed should not have hiked today, um, and now they're just another quarter point into the hole with the banking system. Um, so I think that's, you know, they've dug the hole a little deeper here. Do you think it was bold of him, and I mean bold sort of loosely, um, of him to say that he rate cuts aren't in the cards? I mean, given that they, there's a, a lagged effect of the hikes they've already done, there's the unknown tightening that is yet to come from credit conditions because of the banking crisis, which seems... Mm. I mean, you mentioned PacWest. We're, we're witnessing another unraveling of yet another regional bank. So, the, you know, the credit tightening could be even more than what we expected when we thought the banking system was was sort of has stabilized. Um, I don't know. It just seems sort of like wh why I would mean, you look, say that? Look, I mean, uh, he is not yet at the point, whatever his read is or the Fed's read is of the banking data that they're looking at, the senior loan officer survey, I'm sure they see deposits on a daily basis. They're not at a point where financial stability is trumping monetary policy. For a lot of people, I think it is. There were many people who were, I've got people on the phone saying the Fed, to fix the banking system, needs to cut 100 basis points. Uh, Powell is not there, maybe not there yet. That may be the issue. Um, but the question is how far down this road he wants to go with the uncertainty, which he said several times, Melissa, that it's uncertain what the effects are. Well, from my standpoint, I, I think they're playing with fire here. I don't want to have to report on another broader banking crisis. It's one thing for banks to go down. But if it's one after another after another, at some point, 
you start to be concerned that there's a systemic issue here. Look, they've already declared systemic risk exceptions twice. They've had to create a new fund to liquefy the banks and their and their portfolio. So to say everything is hunky dory, I think is just wrong. Yeah. Steve, thank you. Great work today, Steve Leisman. Let's bring in Paul McCulley, PIMCO's former chief economist. Paul now teaches Fed watching at Georgetown. What a course that is, Paul. <laughs> I want to know who your best student is. I want to have him on the show. Um, in terms of what, what Steve was just mentioning and, and the notion of, of the unknown of bank stress and what the Fed is doing, do you think that this is a huge mistake? You already thought that the Fed should have paused. I'm not sure it's a cardinal mistake. I wouldn't have done it. Uh, but I think they're very clear about the whole issue of wanting to separate the acute phase of the banking issue and the chronic phase. And I think the acute phase, which is actually banks going uh, down and we losing our weekends waiting for the resolution, that seems to be drawing to a close. So from that standpoint, you can say it's stable. But the chronic problem is that where the level of short-term interest rates is, and given the deep inversion of the curve, it is a chronic drag on bank profitability, reducing NIMS, uh, reducing risk appetite, uh, and leading to a pullback uh, in bank lending. So I think we are shifting to the whole notion of the credit tightening, uh, taking over the lead and weakening the economy. Uh, and he's uncertain of how much. Uh, so uh, effectively, he does a lot of hand waving. I didn't think he was terribly comfortable in front of the podium today. That's not a criticism, just an observation, uh, because there basically are pause, but don't want to say that and are waiting to see just how nasty the credit tightening is going to be. How many uh, more banks would have to fail, Paul, in your view, for this acute phase, as you call it, to, con to, to continue? Because you said that that phase is probably over, and yet we're witnessing in the after-hour session PacWest down 50-plus percent, and that's on top of huge declines that we've already seen this week. It feels like the same story is, is, is playing out here right now with that same sort of, like, what is going to happen to this bank, which is reportedly considering strategic options, including a sale. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to make a sharp line between acute and chronic. Uh, and after uh, uh, First Republic, you know, we could say, and Jamie said, you know, the acute portion is over uh, and we will still have some more. Uh, can they be handled, you know, without us being up all weekend, uh, every weekend, in which case it's a chronic issue. Uh, but the real issue, I think, from a policy perspective and how it feeds back into how uh, they handle monetary policy is I think the credit tightening is going to be very meaningful because even if you don't have flight of deposits in a run fashion, I think they will keep walking for the higher rate alternative, which is now a 5% on a money market account. So I think chronic's going to lost last a fair amount of time is going to weigh on the economy. And I think the day was the last hike and the next move will be an ease. Uh, and I think that's probably what Powell was stressing the most is he knows that we think that uh, and he was pushing back on it uh, because bottom line, he wants to see a weaker labor market. Professor Paul, it's Tim. I, you know, you indicated you wanted a pause for this event. Um, do, 
345,000 jobs were added in the first quarter. The Fed always overstays the party. Are they staring at the wrong numbers right now? Because that, that number means very little looking forward. I, I get the sense that uh, the employment numbers being so strong are throwing everybody off. I think that's right, Tim. They were stronger than I anticipated in the first quarter, particularly because they were driven by a half million uh, in January. Uh, and they've been surprised that the labor market has been as stout and sturdy as it has been. And they want it uh, to soften. And that will be the bell ringer for them that uh, they can actually say, yes, we paused uh, and not push back so hard on us. Uh, with respect to the easing that's priced in. Uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, and uh, meantime, we have this chronic condition that I think is a really tight vice uh, on uh, Main Street lending, if you will. Uh, so that's the, the real tension we have in the system. And I think it will be resolved in the notion that the tightening credit uh, on Main Street uh, will uh, dominate uh, and the job market will slow. Uh, but, you know, I have to recognize that I've been anticipating that and it's been sturdier than I think. You said the next move will be a cut. When will that cut be in your view? I think, you know, sometime after Jackson Hole, uh, which would put it into, you know, the fall uh, months. Um, and Jackson Hole, and we've talked about this before, it's been hugely important to me as I look out on the forward calendar because it was last August when he gave his famous pain speech and they've tightened a potload since that stage of the game. The economy slowed, inflation's going the right direction. We have a chronic bank banking issue. So I'm looking at August at Jackson Hole is the time where uh, he can give a, a uh, more fulsome uh, sort of uh, speech about the notion. We are now sufficiently restrictive. Uh, in fact, we might be just a little bit too restrictive. So uh, between now and then, I think it's going to be a choppy period. And I'm not terribly optimistic mm -hmm. uh, going forward on the capital markets. I'm not a big screaming bear. Uh, but I'm not optimistic like I was at the beginning of the year because the markets are not cheap right now. Paul, great to speak with you. Thank you. Paul McCulley. Good to see Georgetown. you. What do you think, Steve? So I don't, I don't think he's going to cut. The way he acted, when he pushed up against it, he was so stern today. And he was off base. By the way, a couple of people have said that, where it seems like he was a little off base today, other than other meetings before. Mm -hmm. To Karen's point, inflation is too high. Easier to afford milk, egg, cheese when you have a job and their prices are too high than when you don't have a job and the prices stay flat for a little bit. But the, we've never had more people have jobs. Yeah, that's my right. point. He wants oh. to break the back of the jobs market in order to say to victory one. So he right. wants to push inflation down. If you have a job, you can afford expensive items. If you don't, you can't. Okay, I'm not, but look not an how argument far he's you pushed. I, I just and think look that he's at pushing what's happened to unemployment, right? So are you saying, all he's right. Push, he continues to push because he's only using his litmus test as the unemployment number. So if he keeps pushing on that, he's going to make whatever rece recession that we thought would be short and shallow could be deep and long at this point. What's your feeling about the markets now versus 24 hours ago? Well, again, I look at Fed funds. They, they have... 
the Fed doing 150 basis points of cuts in the next calendar year. Um, I, I actually think that the market tomorrow and for the next couple of days could find some relief in, in the reality of that the Fed is done. Um, I, I don't love equities up here on, on an EPS earnings multiple perspective. Uh, I think the market has been a function of positioning and, and sentiment as much as anything. And, and right now, again, I, I think the market has gotten um, like at 40, 4150 to 4200 markets uh, at the top end of a range. Coming up, we're watching some after-hours action in Qualcomm shares lower after reporting results, bringing the details next. Plus, a crude awakening for the energy sector. Oil now below 70 bucks a barrel. But will prices continue to drop? How to trade the moves when fast money returns? You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Breaking news on J&J's Kenview IPO. Pippa Stevens got the details. Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, Kenview has priced its IPO at $22 per share, according to a source familiar with the matter. That is the high end of the range, which was $20 to $23. The maker of household products like Tylenol, Band-Aid, and Neutrogena upsized the size of their offering and will raise $3.8 billion in the sale. And this would be, Melissa, the largest U.S. IPO in more than a year. Back to you. Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. Earnings alert here on Qualcomm shares extending the day's losses despite reporting a revenue beat for its fiscal Q2. The chipmaker issuing weaker guidance for the current quarter as it continues to face higher inventories and lower demand. Christina Parsonevelis has some of the details from the report. Christina. Well, Qualcomm striking a more dour tone. Although it's trying to diversify away from auto as well as IoT sales, the bulk of its revenue still comes from handsets. And that segment fell 14% year over year. So the earnings call is underway right now. The CEO saying the handset inventory drawdown will remain a, quote, significant factor for at least the next couple of quarters. Management also warning they have not seen evidence of a meaningful recovery in China, which is different than what other chipmakers have said, which is why also its Q3 EPS outlook fell well below estimates. They also said on the call that 3G, 4G and 5G smartphone units in 2023 uh, is expected to be down at least high single digit percentage. And then one line that really stood out to me in the report was, quote, we estimate a larger than normal sequential decline in QCT revenues, which is pretty much the sale of the trips, chips, but primarily due to the timing of purchases by a modem only handset customer. Keep in mind, Qualcomm CEO has previously told CNBC 
that has no plans to provide Apple with modem chips in 2024. So you can see losing that customer could hurt. Yep. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinevelis. We got a lot of data points from the chip sector so far. A lot this week. Yeah. Uh, so, so just to be really clear, you know, Apple is a 20% customer of Qualcomm. Okay. So Down earlier this week, so, la- la- so last night, so we're just, we have a warning on handsets. That's what that is. That's what just yeah. came out right there. Okay. So we heard AMD on data center last night. That wasn't good. That stock was down 9% today. The day before that, we had Arista Networks was down 15%. That's not a small company. We don't talk about it that much. Okay. Five and a half billion dollars in revenue. And they were talking about weak demand from the cloud customers. Their customers are Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft. Okay, so you put all that together, you think about the outperformance that Tim has highlighted on numerous occasions of the semiconductor sector off the bottom, that the NASDAQ rallied 20%, the SMH was up 60%, and you say to yourself, there's something going on here, there's a lack of visibility here, and just by the way, you know, Apple is down four bucks and it reports tomorrow night. Yep. Are you worried about Apple? Yeah, I'm worried about Apple, especially the rally it's had going into outperforming the S&P, you know, in the last four months off uh, and, at, you know, essentially within a handful of percent off of its all uh, of its all time high. So um, as you pointed out, Apple is responding to the the Android, but also the the China dynamics and, and saying that we see, you know, by the way, Qualcomm, who's given us a lot of bad news. It's not as if Qualcomm has been uh, telling people that their business is very strong. So it's interesting to me that Apple hasn't ever really responded. It's after hours. His markets are thin. Um, but no, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to be able to buy Apple lower and I expect to be able to buy Apple lower. And, and I don't think it's even 10 bucks lower. I mean, I, th- I think it's 20 percent lower. Yeah. Two percent lower in the after hours so far. Coming up, shares of Starbucks seeing its worst day in years. What is behind this move? Plus, a game changer for Eli Lilly shares surging after some big data on a new drug. What the news could mean for the pharma stock's future. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks selling off late in the session after the Fed signaled that rate cuts may not be coming in the near future. The Dow dropping 270 points, the S&P falling seven-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq down nearly half a percent. Major averages down three days in a row now. Some movers from today's session. Starbucks dropping more than 9% after the company kept full-year guidance steady despite a beat in Q1. The stock notching its worst day since March of 2020. Shares of CVS dropping nearly 4% after its results this morning. The company cutting its forecast due to costs related to recent acquisitions. And Etsy on the move after our shares higher after a beat on revenues, earnings in line with estimates. People are buying the Gaiadami sock puppet, which is custom made. Um, Starbucks. We sat here on Monday and I was telling you, I'm happy to see this. This stock did not belong. And at 116-ish, which is where I was selling the last bit of my upside calls and and was able to buy that back at zero today, essentially. Um, You know, the stock's trading about 34 times. Um, I don't. I didn't hear from these numbers. I didn't hear from management. Um, they kind of reaffirmed 23. They didn't reaffirm uh, numbers out to 24, 25, where they'd been a lot more aggressive. And I just think there's only so much you can do. So um, great company. I'm going to buy it lower and I'm starting to get there. 
Coming up, we are focusing on pharma as Eli Lilly surges on new Alzheimer's drug data, the implications for treatment as well as the impact on the stock next. Plus, Apple results due out tomorrow, but can the tech titans climb continue? We'll check in on the options pits to see how traders are playing this one. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Eli Lilly surging more than 6% to another all-time high today. The company concluding a phase three trial of its Alzheimer's treatment and finding a significant slowdown in disease progression, this getting the drug closer to FDA approval this year. CEO David Ricks broke down the results this morning on Squawk Box. It's not a cure, but it is a significant step forward today with Donunumab's um, uh, efficacy results, which, which significantly slows the disease down in our study. Beta amyloid removal is a key to slow down this disease. It's not the only thing to do, but we have a new tool today, and we're going to rush it to the FDA and hopefully get full approval by the end of the year. Here now to dig into the implications of the drug is Dr. Kavita Patel, NBC News medical contributor and former White House Health Policy Director. Uh, Dr. Kavita, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. There, it's not only just the Eli Lilly drug that's potentially going to hit the market, but Biogen also has a drug. So what would you tell patients in terms of the key differences here? Because it does seem that the Biogen drug has a, a better safety profile as of the information that we have right now compared to the Lilly drug. Yeah, Melissa, this is an important point. If I had to compare the two drugs, what we're seeing so far, and Lily did put out an incredible amount of data, but we still need to see full packet of data to understand this efficacy. But as you mentioned, better efficacy on its, and also clearly met its primary and secondary clinical endpoints than ESI and Biogen. And also a little bit of apples and oranges, Melissa, because some of the kind of indicators that they use to assess activities of daily living and Alzheimer's progression and clinical outcomes in the Lilly study were a little different than ESI and Biogen. Having said that, to your point, and then I also have to weigh the safety profile, need to see more of that safety data from Lilly, but it did seem to have a higher safety kind of flag or concern. They had two deaths, and we need to explore and understand a little bit more about the details of those two deaths. And then one in four of their patients that had this kind of amyloid-related imaging abnormality, those are not necessarily correlated with something that could make clinical outcomes worse. And but it is something that's worth flagging. So if I had a patient in front of me, I'll be honest, and we had FDA approval, I would also hope we had some coverage by insurance companies. I would say that that higher efficacy and depending on what I understand about trying to identify patients at safety risk might tilt a little bit more to the Lilly drug. But what's reaffirming in both of those drugs now is that we've got proof that removing that sticky protein, the amyloid plaques, really does seem to have clinical benefit. And that's, I think, the big takeaway for me from, these, from this study and also pairing that with Biogen. Dr. Patel, it's Karen Feinerman. Thanks for being on. I wonder, drugs like this, where the price tag is going to be really high, you, talked, you touched on coverage, and with sort of a, it's, it's a sort of a 35% delay to what exactly, what, what kind of coverage do you expect to get or what kind of pushback do you expect to get on coverage here? Yeah, Karen, this is, uh, I, look, this is my old kind of policy backyard thinking about Medicare coverage. And this is CMS right now on the East Side Biogen drug, Lecambi, has what they call coverage with evidence development, meaning there's kind of a limited and restricted coverage. This generated, obviously, a lot of blowback from both the patient community and some clinical members of the community that said that it deserved a much broader 
coverage, meaning a national coverage determination without those kind of parameters that limit the coverage. This Lilly study is going to put CMS in an interesting position where they are going to have to look at this data, the full packet of data that the FDA is looking at. And it seems incredibly compelling that they should expand coverage and potentially take away that coverage with evidence determination, just given what we saw with, as to your point, meaningful clinical outcomes, again, weighing the safety risk, meaningful clinical outcomes that really do translate for my Alzheimer's patients, this translates to years of independent living. And I think that's something that uh, every payer is going to consider. Interesting point on the dosing of Lilly. It's, it was done as a one-year monthly infusion chair dosing. So that might seem attractive that you're kind of one year and done compared to the Esai Biogen drug, which had longer dosing intervals. But we're not sure if that one year is enough and if some of that plaque could come back. Remember, these were early Alzheimer's patients. So unfortunately, not a solution for everyone, but a huge opportunity. And it positions Lilly in a way that if you think about its portfolio, it's really taking attack on some of the biggest chronic diseases in our globe. Kavita, thank you. Dr. Kavita Patel. For more on what Eli Lilly's Alzheimer's drug trial uh, results mean for, for the stock, let's bring in Mohit Bansal. He's Wells Fargo's biotech and pharmaceuticals analyst. Mohit, great to have you back with us. You know, the last time we spoke, you were saying that this is not part of your model, the Alzheimer's upside. And so when you see a six plus percent pop in the stock, what's being priced in given there's some significant unknowns um, that we have here still, particularly when it comes to the safety profile. We won't know the full results until July at an Alzheimer's uh, conference. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, so what I said was that it is not a big part of our model. Our model had about 10 to 15 percent valuation associated with Alzheimer's. Uh, and I think the data today are definitely better than what we expected. We expected the efficacy to be somewhere in line with uh, Biogen's uh, data and uh, safety to be similar to what we have seen today. So efficacy is clearly better. Uh, so uh, we are not surprised by the move. We we published a note this morning said, said saying that the stock could be up 10% on that. So so that's the, uh, and, and like Dr. Patel pointed out, the most important part here is that insurers provide coverage. And now we have two important, two drugs out there. They both show benefit to these patients uh, and the, they are in the same class. So CMS, it's just a matter of time. CMS will have to find a way to cover these drugs. So it's interesting to see the stock reaction initially when the Lilly news crossed this morning. Biogen um, sort of took a stutter step on the thinking that if Lilly's efficacy was better, then that would be the winner here. But actually, as you mentioned, this actually bolsters the case for for coverage of both. So in this kind of scenario um, where the efficacy is better, but it actually sort of proves the Biogen drugs of efficacy overall and also improves the chances of reimbursement overall, how do you sort of view the two? So we do not see these two drugs as either or. We, we mm-hmm. The market opportunity is much bigger. You're talking about more than a million patients out in the U.S. and then globally even bigger. Uh, this is a market, uh, and then even if you compare the profiles of the drug on efficacy-wise, Lily looks better versus Biogen, but from the safety, there's clearly Biogen has an advantage. So it could be up to the doctors to decide what they want to use for one their patients. Uh, and ultimately, it's a big market, and for markets like this, you sometimes need more than one players to uh, to develop the market. So, Mohit, when you look at you're just talking about the efficacy of of uh, Eli Lilly versus Biogen. 
But also, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the side effects seem a lot worse, or I, I don't want to use the word a lot, seem worse with uh, Lily, Eli Lilly at this point. So when you look at it, we're out of the, blo- out of the, out of the box where you said it's not either or. But when you look at it from that standpoint, does Eli Lilly seem like a less uh, beneficial stock to you going forward, let's say, in the next six to eight months? Uh, not particularly, because uh, efficacy and safety are two things. But as Dr. Patel mentioned, there's an important element of Lilly's drug is that is in this particular trial, they were using finite dosing. So 12 months or 18 month dosing for some of the patients, uh, about 70 percent of the patients did not were not being dosed for more than 18 months, 18 months here. And that's an important uh, uh, element, because if I'm a payer, there's a drug which I need to take forever versus a drug which I need to take for a finite duration. Uh, I would probably save more money with the drug which is finite duration. So overall, there are so many uh, different aspects of these two drugs which come into play. And that's why we kind of model both of them to be similar. Uh, besides, there are other catalysts for for, for Eli Lilly. So, so uh, competitor Novo is running an obesity trial uh, so for for their for, for their clip one, and that obesity trial uh, among obese obese patients, they're trying to figure out whether that drug shows benefit on cardiovascular uh, risk endpoints. And if that turns out to be positive, that would be a big deal for Lilly and Munjaro as well, because then these drugs are not just weight loss drugs; these drugs can be can be can be can be improving the cardiovascular risk profile of these patients. So, um, you know, if you take a look at the 12-month performance, these stocks are pretty much tied year-to-date. Lilly clearly wins. Lilly's also got Monjaro. So which stock has more upside in your view? Would it be Lilly? Uh, so at this point, I think, uh, in, uh, at this point in our target price, I think it is Biogen for now. Uh, but a lot depends on the select uh, obesity trial because uh, that is something that we do not model in our, our model. Uh, ultimately, if this, this the opportunity for obesity is much bigger than what we are projecting, uh, uh, that could be a big upside for for lady because Biogen doesn't have that upside. <clears throat> Biogen is mostly Alzheimer's at this point. Moit, great to have you with us. Thank you, Moit Bansal of Wells Fargo. Uh, that was a would you rather? Yeah, he, he played it. Now. He played it well. Yeah, he did. He gave an answer. So, what do you think? Well, I, long Eli. Uh, but I, I, I agree. I think Biogen is, is the better call. Um, it seems to me what's interesting, though, as he said, and we, we kind of asked him about where the optionality of, of Alzheimer's was mm-hmm. for Lilly, and he was saying, you know, therefore it wasn't really in his model. Um, it does seem to me that there will be upgrades based upon this. I mean, and that's not a big revelation on a day like today, but when you consider the addressable market on the weight loss and diabetes drugs, that really is what analysts have been playing with on their base yeah. case, bull case, and, and bear case. So um, I I think Lilly's almost priced to perfection, um, but I don't know what the analyst community is going to do, and and the stock will move on that. I feel like a lot of this will be on coverage. And if you think about, uh, if I think about terzepatide or Ozempic, to me, those drugs are so powerful because, we've talked about this a number of times, they can maybe prevent you from needing a number of other drugs, whereas as great as this Alzheimer's is, and I, I really care about this issue, um, wh- that doesn't have the same sort of uh, knock-on benefits for CMS or whoever is insuring. Right. I don't want to make it that. 
Coming up, we're keeping an eye on Zillow in the after hours. Shares are higher after its latest report. We'll bring you the details of the quarter in just a few. But first, Apple, the last bang name to drop results. Can the Granny Smith gains continue? <laughs> or is this Apple poised to fall far from the tree? How often traders wow. are playing it when fast money returns. Do not miss the sea of Airbnb and Squawk Box tomorrow, 8.15 Eastern Time. Brian Chesney joins us to talk about the company's latest expansion efforts and growth plans. That's right here on CNBC. Meantime, shares of Apple falling after hours on the back of Qualcomm's earnings report tomorrow. The tech giant reports earnings of its own. The company previously guided toward a revenue decline of 5% thanks to slowing sales of Macs and iPads. It's also expected to announce $90 billion in share buybacks and dividends. Options traders feeling bullish ahead of the report. Mike's got the action. Mike? Yeah, Apple was the fourth busiest single stock option that we saw today, trading 770,000 contracts overall. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 4.1% by the end of the week after they report that's in line with what we've seen over the past eight reported quarters. Bullish bets outpaced the bearish ones by about 30%, and the busiest contracts were the May 180 calls that expire a week from Friday. We saw about 55,000 of those trading. Those were trading close to 90 cents, and that included some institutional buyers. We saw some blocks as close as about 8,000 contracts. My guess is the buyers of these are doing a FOMO trade here. This thing is just about 8% below its all-time highs, and yet we have seen revenue and EPS declines. I think this is a cheap way to play for upside because I think we're probably at the upper end of the range right now. All right, Mike, thanks. Uh, Mike Coe, with that, uh, FOMO, or maybe it's fear of banking crisis. We were just talking about PacWest is down 55% right now. We saw that bid for safety in mega caps. Maybe that's going to help this whole trade. No, I mean, listen, I said this to you last Thursday when that AWS guidance came out for the current quarter, and you string together everything we've heard from tech. I think the good quarters that those stocks gapped up on are really is backward looking, and I think it's about to get a lot harder from here. And when you mentioned PacWest, again, all of these companies are tech buyers, and that's the thing. All these financial services companies, I think that slows too. Yeah, Karen? Uh, well, I'm long. I'm always long and nervous about Apple and have been for a while. And uh, I, I'm just going to stick with it, though. It's not a huge position anymore. Um, I regret having sold any of it, actually. But at some point, it just gets too big, too expensive. The last bit I'm hanging on. That, that implied option activity or volatility seems very light. Four percent. I, I would I would say the only thing I'm really confident of is that Apple moves one way or another by 10 to 15 percent versus that four percent. What? It's big. It just it just seems really it just seems really light in the environment that we are in with a lot of these. We all what do we do every night? We always sit here and say this stock is trading like a micro cap. So and these are mega cap mega cap names. I, I hear you. And having also just said the last block or two in the yeah, show 20%. that I think the stock's up 25 percent for the S&P and Apple's a bit. The flight to quality on these stocks means that the first move in Apple isn't a big one, in my view. There's no way people are going to abandon the stock. They could, they could, unless they give devastating numbers that indicate there's a, you know, a breakdown in some of the, the secular themes here. I, I just think that um, Apple is priced to perfection um, relative to itself from a year and a half ago. Um, there was a pull forward. We just heard from Qualcomm. We've heard from other people. China is, is not drawing. So, um, but it's not gonna. It's not gonna go down. I, I think massively tomorrow. Well, I'm, I'm long it. I didn't mean down. I didn't mean down. I said one way or another. Yeah, so I'm not. Really, I'm not hoping. Really I said one one way or another. Yeah. I'm hoping right. it's up. Got it. Uh, for more options action, tune into the full show Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, we're all over the move in Zillow shares are building up gains. Get it building uh, up gains. Nice. In the after hours, we'll bring you the details in the quarter next. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. One more earnings alert to get to. This one on Zillow. Shares of the company jumping after reporting Q1 revenues and adjusted EBITDA well above expectations. Diana Olick has been on the conference call. Diana, what's the latest? Well, Melissa, on the call, CEO Rich Barton said, I feel quite good about progress we can control. He said there's a lot of talk about improving the Zillow user experience and connecting them to products like Zillow Home Loans. I'll get to that in a second, but a nice beat, as you said, for Zillow in Q1 on revenue and adjusted EBITDA. Breaking it down, residential revenue decreased 14% year over year due to weakness in the overall housing market. That's the part he can't control. Rentals revenue increased 21% year over year thanks to strong traffic in multifamily and mortgage revenue dropped 43% due to higher interest rates resulting in less demand. Now, Zillow is getting heavily into AI. Part of that is affordability tools. Barton said in the release, our powerful brand and strong balance sheet put us on solid footing as we build the housing super app and help get more people home. Now, Zillow just announced a new chat GPT fix feature to go up in the game home searches. And of course, Redfin just announced the same thing this afternoon. Melissa. All right, Diana. Thank you, Diana Olick. It's the newest thing. It's the biggest fad. Yes. A little AI, but you you like the quarter. I do like the quarter. I like the name. I like the the giant shift from owning houses to, of course, you know, doing a 180 and selling them all. Good for them for doing that. I like so it's now a much more asset light business. And I like that. And she talked about 14 percent down year over year on sales. Think about that. That's not bad at all when you consider what's happened to the housing market in the last year. They are the place to go to. That rental is that rental revenue is great. That's a newer area for them. And so I, I like it. I think that it, hopefully if we see stabilization and recovery, they're going to be the place to go. I like it. I, I like it, too. Uh, I liked it probably 20 bucks higher. So um, I you know, need to like it a lot more from here. But I, I agree. This is a profitable company. This isn't a question of a company that's burning cash. And in fact, um, they are through some of these efficiencies going to be more profitable than ever on a much smaller scale. All right. Up next, final trades. We're watching shares of PacWest in the after-hour session down 58%. This on reports that it is weighing strategic options, including a sale. We should note that this move in the after-hour session is being made on very heavy volume for an after-hour session move. It's actually half the average daily volume um, that we're seeing traded here right now. All right, so down... uh, 58%. 58%. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Tough day for oil, but Energy Transfer Partners is a midstream utility that's going to, I think, have significant yields over the next year. And again, the, the commodity is not the stock. Karen. Yes. So with higher rates, I do think we're going to start to see more stress in credit. I'm surprised we haven't seen more short HYG. Dan. Yeah. Once we get by Apple's earnings, the next folks are going to be NVIDIA. And everything we heard from the semis, I'm just not too optimistic here. So I am a seller on A stock that I have not spoken about in a long time, yet I still own Sonos. Looks like on a chart, it has bottomed, continues to rally quietly. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. We'll see you tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.